This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots to talk about with Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa PR. Going to talk about uh, the fuss around the Rob Ford flick, but also in regard to what has just happened with the Liberals. Alyssa is with us now. Thank you, Alyssa, for taking the time. We always uh, enjoy your time here. It's a juicy day for me <laughs> to talk radio, Scott. <laughs> All right. Uh, first, before we get into the Rob Ford stuff in the movie that really isn't about Rob Ford, why don't uh, talk about what happened with David Livingston? He, of course, uh, sentenced to four months for his his role in the deleting emails of the gas plant scandal. Your thoughts and, and what sort of message does this send to politicians across the country? First of all, shocker. I don't think anybody thought that he would see an hour in jail. Yeah. And here he is, he's going to spend four months. And can I tell you, it will be the longest four months of his life. Hmm. Furthermore, what does that say? It says that nobody is Teflon anymore. Nobody is protected. That if you want to engage in nefarious activities and you are found out, this is sending a very strong message to everybody all across the political spectrum. How do you think Ontarians, uh, this is going to play with Ontarians, because I'm sure a lot were thinking the same thing you were. Well... I think they're going to think that, you know what, the Liberals are touchable. They're not untouchable. There are some polls that see them uh, rising in the polls, and there are some that show them very far apart from the Conservatives. But honestly, during a run-up to an election, this is about the last thing, other than Kathleen Wynne herself, this is the last thing that the Liberals need because it is a confirmation um, of wrongdoing. Can Kathleen Wynne convict, convict, or can convince the electorate that this was another time, another government? That will be her narrative, 100%, Scott. Whether it works or not, what else can she say? So that's what she has to work with. You know, everybody's counting her out right now. Um, the election really hasn't begun in earnest. I would say, you know, after May 1st, it will, it, it will, and people will start paying attention to it. So therefore, everybody is kind of holding their cards very close to their chest. And Kathleen Wynne is a a great campaigner. She should be feared as a as a campaigner. So, but when it comes to this and it comes to, you know, well-televised debates between her and Doug Ford, trust me, he's going to hammer on this issue. She will give that narrative as that line, as her response back, and then they'll just jump all over it again. A recent poll uh, issued by Ipsos after the, the big budget uh, gift list came down that, that the uh, the Liberals had dropped again. Surprised that after that budget with so many goodies in it that it didn't resonate with Ontarians? Well, I think that there was another poll before that that showed that there was a bit of a, a post-budget bounce. Yes, there which was. Which typically yeah. happens yeah. with any government. And then, you know, so for everybody who wanted free daycare, they all went, okay, me, 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 yeah, yeah I can get it, I'll, I'll jump on. And then I think that a lot of the reporting had to do, okay, has anybody added this stuff up? And that narrative started to resonate with Canadians going, okay, well, that all sounds good, but at what cost? All right, let's move on. Let's talk okay. about the uh, Rob Ford movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, especially in Toronto, thought this was going to be more a movie of Rob Ford and not necessarily uh, a, a fictional story set in uh, the Rob Ford, uh, you, you know, as a, as a backdrop. Um, it's filming in Toronto right now. Damian Lewis is cast as the former mayor, going to take a uh, place against the backdrop of Rob Ford's scandal a couple, year, a couple of years back. But the issue that people have brought forward is that Robin Doolittle is not represented and instead being f- uh, the focus is on three other fictional characters, one being played by Ben Platt. Everybody's going, who's Ben Platt? He is this who's guy. Who's Ben Platt? Yeah, listen. I've got Okay, it's that Ben Platt from Pitch Perfect. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Robin Doolittle sent out a tweet. She was upset, said, I'm glad uh, they're rewriting the fact that it was a female reporter who investigated Rob Ford. Why have a woman be a lead character when a man could do it? Am I right? Do you think she knew all the background of this movie before that? Um, you know what is interesting? They say this is a movie not about Rob Ford, but it is about Rob Ford. This is a movie about an investigative journalist, but it's not really about the investigative journalist. Can, I say, one, can I say one word? Titanic. Yeah. Do you think there really was a Jack and Rose aboard the Titanic? I mean, it's the same thing. It's a fictional story set in a real-life scenario. It's historical fiction. Are we expecting, are we expecting, are we expecting too much by bringing the Me Too movement into this? about the Me Too movement. I think it's about what we know about the story and, you know, who portrayed it. So, 
you know, they say that this is just a, fi- a fictionalized representation. And this is what happens any time that you take a real life story and you create a screenplay about it. And some of it works and some of it doesn't. So why they thought a male reporter would, um, a scenario would do a better job than a female reporter. But wait a sec, uh, wait a sec. The, 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 the story I have is it's about three reporters Mm-hmm. And he's one of three. And he, here's the tweet from Ben Platt. The film we are making centers on three fictional young people, played by myself, Nina Dobrev, uh, Mina, uh, Mina Massoud, trying to find a place in the world of politics and journalism set against the backdrop of the Rob Ford scandal. The character is in no way based on Robin Doolittle, and the film does not attempt to co-opt her narrative. It's a historical fiction piece. It is not a Rob Ford biopic or a retelling of the successful uh, reporting on the Rob Ford scandal by Robin Doolittle. And again, I just come back to Titanic. So what's the, why is everybody so upset about this? It's not everybody is so upset. I think that the main issue is that we knew that Robin Doolittle was a central character, a central protagonist in the actual um, events that played out during the Rob Ford scandal, and that she is not being appropriately representative for those of us who know the story, which is many in this city. So people are naturally upset about it. You know, I read the Ben Platt retraction uh, or rebuttal. I'm a big fan of Ben Platt. He was in Pitch Perfect. He was the star of the Broadway smash hit Dear Evan Hansen, which I was lucky enough to see, but he wasn't in it. I have to tell you that you can give me every explanation that you want, but when you want to whitewash a script or you want to put it in any other format that you think is more sellable or more watchable, there are people who know the story they are going to voice their objections. And if I was Robin Doolittle, I would have said the same thing. I don't know. I think a lot of people were expecting a different movie. And because the movie isn't being made that they thought was being made, they're upset about it. You know, well, and, and, I, and, I, and I think I don't think this is as much a movie about Rob Ford as it is about these three characters they're talking about. OK. And then listen God. to me. Listen, listen, Lisa. And then as you're trying to get a movie made, you grab a hold of any narrative of the day that will help advance or get your movie made. So okay, well, listen, I, I think I think this is not going after the Rob Ford complete story is that they feel that they'll be get sued six ways to Sunday. That might be why. But when you get a A-list actor like Damian Lewis, um, put him in prosthetics so that he looks like Rob Ford. I mean, what is this? Is, is this conscription, but not necessarily conscription? So is this about Rob? Well, Ford, again, you, you know, Rob Ford? Uh, Alyssa, the best again, the best answer I have for that is Titanic. It, you know, how many movies have been made, fictional movies, about a historical event or something that has happened in pop culture and then rewritten it? I mean, this is, it, to me, this person started with a story and then wrapped Rob, Rob Ford around it for extra publicity. I'm not sure this started with Rob Ford and then, uh, you know. Well, I disagree with you. Well, again, I think Rob Ford's the, the catalyst because it gets everybody's attention, as it did Jimmy Kimmel's. But but again, I don't like the attention. The I don't think the objective here was to do the Rob Ford story. Otherwise, they'd try to do it. And, and again, you, you can write movies and not get your rear end suit off. It happens all the time. Okay, listen. Anytime a movie uh, that is a potentially a biopic, which this is, even though Ben Platt saying it's not, until I actually see the, uh, <laughs> this movie. How can you say it's a biopic if he says it's not? We haven't seen it yet. Well. I don't know. I mean, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it's a duck. You know what I think? And if you I take, think, a Rob, you take I, I, Rob Ford and you take an actor and you put prosthetics on him so that he looks like Rob Ford, it's the Rob Ford story. I so, think uh, Torontonians are upset because they want to see a Rob Ford movie and this isn't the right one. That's what I think. I don't know. Well, that could be part of it. I mean, I read the comments. I read the, the Huffington Post story. And people are all like, well, I'm never going to watch it. Ridiculous. Don't even make it. Can I tell you, every person who wrote there that said they won't watch it, they'll be watching. <laughs> and even though I say, Scott, all the time that, you know, bad PR does not, any PR is good PR, 
In this case, for this type of, and I don't even know if this is a movie or a made-for-TV movie or, or whatever, but it's um, this is great initial publicity for something that isn't even in the editing room yet. You know, and there you've hit the nail on the head, Alyssa. That is why I think we're th- th- this crew, this production company, this director, whatever, that's exactly why I think they tackled this or sort of tried to incorporate the Rob Ford uh, angle of it all. Um, and let me tell you, there there'll probably be you know cameras and whatnot following the the shooting of this when they're doing outdoor scenes. Uh, yeah, because everybody be wants to see what every, sure because you know, everybody walking, wants to see what this guy looks like as Rob well, Ford. They want to see Damian Lewis walking the streets or walking around City Hall dressed as Rob Ford. You know, and and listen, this is not really doing Doug Ford's campaign any uh, any great shakes either. You know, he hasn't said boo, and nor will he pro- probably will because he doesn't want to divert on his message but it's interesting timing for it all why don't the group why doesn't a group of toronto actors just make the movie they want to make well you need money honey so you sure you can make a movie but i think this uh, guy was trying to make a movie about three reporters and he needed money so he decided to use the rob ford angle and that generated lots of interest in it i mean are we missing that point in hollywood no, I don't think so. I think that that was always, you know, that was part. Uh, listen, I'm so you think script, you, you're but. convinced this is a Rob Ford uh, biopic, and they're just rewriting this, and it's terrible of them to do that. I don't think it's terrible of them, but I think that the point should be made that if it was Robin Doolittle, who was uh, one of the main investigators, along with uh, Kevin Donovan, mm-hmm. and along with the reporter from Gawker, who was yeah. one of the first people to release the uh, the tape, why isn't he whining about this? Gee, well, why is this set? Well, why is this set in a fictitious? That's why. <laughs> why is this not set? In, why is this not set in a? Why is this set in a fictitious newspaper? Why isn't it set on a website? Because that's where well, it all start. That's where it all started. It all started with Gawker. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know, and and I think it all has to do with um, careful couching and how you represent, uh, you know, certain scenarios and certain subjects, and it kind of keeps you out of the courts. All right. So do you think people care about this? Mm, They certainly do. I mean, you know, I heard about this the other day and I thought, okay, well, you know, that's that's pretty awful, but whatever. And then I get a call this morning and it's one of the top stories. So I think people do care about it for the next 24 hours, Scott, but in the next 24 hours. So so you don't think this has anything to do with the Me Too movement? No, I think this is just people who know the story. Want to know so you don't think this is a you don't think this is a gender thing as much as the story's not being told correctly. So it's not the fact that a man is portraying a woman, which really they're not because it's not about her. Um, but am I putting words in your mouth here? Well, I also think you have to remember that you know Robin was a it was a major a. Um you know, was one of the lead investigators. She wrote a book on it. She did all the TV shows and all the news programs all over North America. But it's not a it. movie about Robin Doolittle. I understand, but the fact is, is that maybe the Me Too movement is playing a little bit in part of it. But I think it is. I think we're being too sensitive here. I'm a Me Too guy. I'm being sensitive. I think we're being real. I'm be. I'm a Me Too guy. You know, I'm a lover, not a fighter, Alyssa. But I, you know, I I don't know. I I think this is really stretching it, and I can see the point. But I think Torontonians want to see a certain movie about Rob Ford, and this isn't the movie that has been written or that these people are doing. And I think that's got some people's noses out of joint. Well, I just think that I know that there's lots of actresses in Hollywood who could have done a great job, and they decided not to blow out her character in the script, and instead made it a male. Yeah, but again, and you're assuming that, that you're, you're assuming this. The news, there are enough people. Toronto is a big city. It's got a lot of powerful media outlets yeah. and a lot of people who read them. And they came out and said, "Well," and Robin Doolittle herself came out and said. Okay, well, that's interesting, but I guess they wanted, you know, they had a, ma- a man play a woman's part. So, but that's again assuming that the movie's about. A lot of notice. Again, that's assuming that the movie's about the book she wrote, and it's not. I think that when we see the movie, you and I will have another conversation, Scott. And I'll say, <laughs> see, Alyssa, I told you.
no, 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 no. All right, I want to. You are putting words in my mouth because that's what I'm going to say to you. Oh, okay. All right, one more. Uh, the prime minister trying to get a pipeline built. Uh, he's watching Alberta and BC fighting over things like wine and oil and all sorts of stuff. They're boycotting everything there. This is two NDP governments that are going at each other. Uh, the prime minister uh, can no longer sit on the fence and and preach sunny ways. He's going to have to roll his sleeves up and get some action done here. How does he move forward with this? Well, he's going to have to pick a side. Well, theoretically, he has picked a side, and he says it's going through. Well, then he's going to have to put his foot down and actually, you know, get some action going about that. The thing about Trudeau is that often he does a lot of talking and a lot of complaint about him now that people are waking up to the fact that, you know, the sunny ways and the sunny days are not here again. That is, is that he's going to have to actually you know, where the rubber hits the road. The thing about Trudeau that we've all been talking about and complaining about over the last few months, which especially have to do with a lot of his um, trips that have to deal with foreign trade, have resulted in some very big fat zeros. So I think in order to regain some traction uh, and some popularity right now with uh, the Canadian electorate, he's going to have to... uh, really sort of pick a side and get things going. All right, one more, and that's it. I'm totally blindsiding you here. Uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg, of course, testifying before Congress right now, uh, getting rattled a little bit. Uh, numbers are showing that Facebook use is down. The shares are down. It's down in Canada. Is this like a Tim Hortons? I mean, are people going to abandon this platform for another one that treats their information the exact same way? How does Facebook move forward with this? Is it only a matter of time before we see regulation? Well, this is the big thing. And the one thing that they fear the most is government regulation. Now, remember, this guy started a site so he could rate girls and see who was hotter than the next, okay? And so now it's resulted in all this sort of, you know, um, this, uh, this analytic corruption. So the number one fear is regulation. And the number two thing is during this congressional hearing is that the people that are questioning him are not necessarily super social media savvy. And they have some very simplistic questions. But, and those are the questions that are rattling him. So one senator says to him, "Um, can you tell us what hotel you're staying in? Yeah, that was rather not. Mm. And he says, well, did you put it on Facebook? Well, no, I didn't. And, and, and really, you know, these very simple questions, the one, these, those are the ones that can disarm you. Yeah. Now, I've never met Mark Zuckerberg, and I did see the social network, and, you know, they showed him to have sort of a very, a little bit of a holier-thou, I'm the smartest guy in the room sort of yeah. attitude. And yeah. I'm sure that when they trained him for this hearing, they said, you better not show any of that. Yeah. You better remain really placid and don't tell anybody off. But the fact of the matter is, is that these senators, this is a huge platform for everybody right now, these mm, hearings. Good point. So it's it's a platform for senators themselves to stand upon um, and get noticed. And, you know, Facebook, what's suffering here is the lack of goodwill. And I know that they have, um, there is some sort of movement, and I think Twitter's adopted it too, that is to show who the advertiser is, like to show who, uh, where the money's coming from. Well, I mean, that's all good in theory, but honestly, you can put out a numbered company and say they paid for it, you don't know who's behind it. You don't know if, you know, Vladimir is there going, is, stock is behind it or, it, you know, Joe from Montana. Is this going anywhere or is, like you said, is this just sideshow politics? I don't know. I don't think people are going to let go of this um, so easily because it's easy pickings, right? And it's so pervasive. Everybody use it, uses it, millions and millions of people every day. I don't see people completely abandoning it, but I think that anybody who's sitting in a basement right now who's contemplating a different platform that does protect your data is probably working faster than normal. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, Alyssa, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. It was a lively one, Scott. It was this time. We didn't agree. <laughs> what do you mean this time? <laughs> Thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Trudeau government held an emergency cabinet meeting to salvage the pipeline expansion, but have not really revealed what their plan is. All we saw in the news last night was a lot of uh, cabinet ministers uh, running away from uh, the reporters and, and not really asking any questions. In the meantime, Alberta has stepped up their game saying uh, they'll take over if need be. Let's hear from the B.C. Prime Minister, both NDP, both Alberta and B.C., but both uh, very much fighting about this. Here's what the B.C. Premier had to say. 
Well, I'm always concerned when uh, a jurisdiction uh, to our east decides that they're going to take provocative action uh, because of our attempt to talk to British Columbians about how we protect our marine environment, how we protect our existing economic activity. And here is BC's infrastructure minister on this. This is a project in the national interest. That's why we approved it. It's about uh, jobs, it's about economy, it's about uh, resource uh, you know, development and getting our resources to the international market. And we have committed to getting this project built uh, and we will get it done. Of course, that is the federal uh, infrastructure minister. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, and of course you can find out more at gasbuddy.com. He is with us. Dan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, really good to be here, Scott. Are you surprised this has got to this level? No, uh, and I think Ottawa held a uh, greater and, and more urgent attention to this. Back in February, when uh, the Horgan government went on its uh, guerrilla war tactic to try to prevent this pipeline, which has been approved by the federal government, uh, has had two years in deliberations, has uh, met with 157 recommendations and conditions to guarantee its safety and its uh, low impact to the environment. Uh, you would have thought that the federal government would have acted a little sooner to defend its position. And while some are saying, well, it's just a war of words, the reality is it's far more serious than that now that the that the carrier, the pipeline company that's already invested uh, about a one and a half billion dollars in uh, in uh, preparation is uh, signaled that as of May 31st they're uh, they're prepared to uh, pack up and go, which would be, uh, do an inordinate amount of damage to the uh, future aspirations and production outcomes for uh, for Alberta and more importantly for Canadians because we rely on Alberta for a lot of our things like equalization and even what 1,600 uh, companies here in Ontario and four billion dollars worth of so this is a national pan-Canadian problem, and uh, it, it really speaks to uh, you know why the government of Canada has waited this long uh, to uh, to actually sit down and actually more than just words carve out uh, a strategy which would limit the amount of uh, puck uh, ragging that uh, Horgan and his uh, gang are trying to uh, in- in- inflict. Why did the Prime Minister sit back and let this fester? Why didn't he jump in earlier? I mean, we can't say too little too late, because this, it certainly sounds like, in, in, in their words, in the federal government's words, that this has to go through, this will go through. Oh. So why did he not hold the hand all the way through this? Trying to ride two horses. Look, the environmentalists are yeah. irrevocably committed against the oil industry. The oil industry is, uh, needs to do what it has to do, attract investment, get oil to market. And see our oil sell for more than 40 bucks a barrel when everyone else is getting 65 or more, which is the case today, Scott. So, you know, you can't, uh, you can't have it both ways. And, and that's un- ironically what, uh, I mean, the advice I certainly would have given to the prime minister, not that I would have sought it from me. Uh, my current colleagues, uh, seem all preoccupied with, uh, with the environment and environmental and climate, uh, rather than recognizing that our bread and butter. Uh, it comes from oil and uh, our natural resources. The irony, however, is uh, the comment that Horgan made, which is that, uh, you know, he's a little surprised all this is happening. I mean, that's showmanship and uh, and a bit of uh, con artistry, as my grandfather used to call it, uh, because he knows full well uh, what he's doing is blocking the last potential pipeline that will be built delivering oil anywhere in Canada because of the uh, restrictions that the federal liberals are putting in place with Bill C-69. So, this is really the end of the rope for the oil industry, and it is the end of the rope for the Canadian standard of living, as we understand it. Over the past 15 years, we've relied on ever-increasing revenues from our oil industry to be able to support our national programs. So think of your health care, your Medicare, your, your education, your equalization uh, money that uh, provinces like Quebec oppose pipelines but have no difficulty cashing in at the end of the year. And I'm not singling them out, because, uh, but I do certainly... In the no, but let's remember that it was them that stopped one from going to the east. And, like, I mean, right. how could they possibly have done that? After Lac Megantic, I mean, of all the hip Exactly. Dumping a billion liters of uh, crap into uh, the uh, St. Lawrence, and then Quebec City doing the exact same, same thing about a month ago. No, uh, look, I think Canadians are starting to realize, and let, let me really open up on this, because if you think this isn't going to affect you, Canadians, uh, you know, it's really critical that you understand... Your dollar is devalued by about 27 cents U.S. dollar. We price all of our commodities in U.S. terms. Uh, people are complaining this morning bitterly about gasoline prices. Well, 14 cents uh, is the cost of what happens when you don't get international prices for your oil because you, you allow bl- uh, pipelines to be blocked. So think about it. 
rather than paying a dollar thirty-three for a liter of gasoline, you'd be paying a dollar nineteen, and possibly even less, of course, if we were able to get more of our product to market. But we're saving the planet. Well, we're saving the planet, though, Dan. We're saving the planet. It's worth nineteen cents well, or whatever it was. It, it, that's one thing. But if you're going to save the planet by allowing more foreign vessels into your area to sell oil uh, in countries that hmm. uh, don't have um, an environmental record, much less a human rights record, then by all means, be hypocrites. Good but point. The frank reality is you have three or four well-funded international environmental organizations using Canada as a uh, as a guinea pig. We are the soft target, and we're allowing ourselves to be the soft target because we fall into this trap of, oh, let's save the planet, and, you know, the sky is falling. Uh, what I would actually offer the Prime Minister is that he stop, you know, uh, uh, patronizing and, and certainly, uh, you know, entertaining the Bill Nye's of this world and start dealing with what uh, Canadians expect, and that's to be able to manage our burgeoning economy at a time when, it desperately needs to find new ways in order to maintain our standard of living. He's compromising on that right now. Do not be surprised by debts and deficits by national and provincial governments. When you take your number one uh, generator of wealth, the oil industry, and you trash it, you wind up hurting yourself in the end. Do we believe the Prime Minister really wants this pipeline to be built? Uh, you know, I, I'm looking at a picture, and I saw this press conference the other day with natural Minister of Natural Resources Jim Carr speaks to reporters with Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Catherine McKenna and the Minister of Instru- Infrastructure and Communities after an emergency cabinet meeting. You know, the body language says it all, and I thought this when Jim Carr was speaking. Sitting, standing next to him is Catherine McKenna, and she's just looking at her shoes. Yeah. I mean, she's looking straight down at the floor. She doesn't even want to acknowledge any of this stuff. Look, you, uh, you have to understand, I, I am not uh, in with that group anymore. I'm a, a long-standing 37, 38-year member of the Liberal Party. This is not the party I joined. And it's certainly not one that uh, you know, leaned hard to the left and to the Green Party. And so whatever their conflict, you know, uh, their, their position is on this, and if they're using this as a roof to say, well, we tried, but it failed, oh, shucks. I really get the feeling, Dan, that that's what they're trying to do. You know, we did everything we had to do, and here's what the people wanted, so to speak. How, how, how are you going to get a, a team like that to manage that constitutional crisis? How are you going to manage disruption within our federation? Because I'll tell you, I served as an MP uh, in a very difficult time when the country almost disintegrated in 1995. I served as an MP when the finances of this country were in shambles. Uh, you know, and I was, I was awfully happy. I had very competent people who didn't play that kind of game, both as prime ministers and a cabinet and a caucus. If they don't understand it now, they're going to understand very quickly that they're attempting a very, very serious outcome when Alberta and BC goes neck, uh, toe-to-toe, head-to-head, neck-to-neck. And Horgan is very concerned because he knows that Alberta is preparing legislation now that if this pipeline fails through obstruction, which is deliberate and, and by a very small, finite group of green uh, activists and zealots, what's going to happen is that Alberta uh, will shut down the pipeline and leave British Columbia without possibly two-thirds of its fuel. That's diesel, that's gasoline, that's jet fuel, so you won't be able to fly around, bring people into your wonderful little Vancouver. Uh, you're going to wind up uh, seeing prices move well into the $2 a litre range. More importantly, you won't have enough fuel to get around. So. Uh, that is the first economic impact, and with the economic, economic impacts, you have political outcomes. But if this is going to put a strain on the Federation, then the Prime Minister has more to lose by playing that game, which is why I suspect that uh, you know, in, in, in his worst-case scenario, he's not playing that game. He better not be, because at the end of the day, it's, a, it's really opening up uh, the proverbial Pandora's box that he, of all people, cannot close. How big is this group that's trying to stop it? Because many say that it's growing, and, uh, you know, uh, even those in B.C. I mean, is the tide changing? Is, is this industry gone? No, uh, quite to the contrary. Buck fifty-five a litre, which is why a lot of them came at me and tried to suggest that the pipeline wouldn't bring more gasoline into, the new expanded pipeline wouldn't bring more gasoline into Vancouver, which desperately needs it. It, it ran counter to their narrative, and it was quite interesting. CBCs in that region, and of course, a few uh, uh, crackpot economists had to actually come out uh, to the extent that they said, "Oh, the, the pipeline doesn't, uh, in fact, bring more gasoline. It's right there in black and white. What was asked for and what was approved in Section six two of the NEB approval and Section fourteen and fifteen uh, of the uh, December sixteenth uh, uh, memorandum or uh, request for expansion by uh, Trans Mountain back uh, uh, in 2013." So it's kind of ironic. And then we have the, the premier, who only two weeks ago took exception to my comments, saying, oh, it won't bring gasoline in at all. These folks are lying through their teeth. And unfortunately, they're bringing the country with them. So it's time for the federal government to stand up, assert its constitutional authority, 
use whatever declaratory powers, including emergency powers, to prevent uh, these two little kids from fighting uh, Alberta and British Columbia. And I don't say kids, I refer to them as our you know, sister and brother provinces. Uh, the federal government has to act to defend its own regulation, because if its regulations and its decisions are meaningless, then that's a far more serious problem for the Federation, not just investors, but for the confidence the world has in Canada, including its population. I don't think I've ever seen B.C. and Alberta so mad at each other. I mean, I used to live out west. It was they, they love each other. They do, and they've often... They've often and, and this is two NDP parties, too, which I just find hilarious. <laughs> well, I think the NDP, uh, you know, without being political, um, is going to have to make a decision. Um, is it for uh, the future ability to support our in- industries, uh, uh, support our social programs? Is it going to support workers, the many thousands? And let's talk about it. Talk about the twenty billion—that's two zero b billion—that uh, will come out of uh, potential revenue and others over the next twenty years. Uh, that both BC and Alberta, and to a lesser extent, many of the other provinces, will be able to share in. This is a net good for the country, and if uh, the NDP can't figure that out, then I think the public has a, a real responsibility to take the bunch by the scruff of the neck and ensure that they don't come back next election. I've had that happen to me when my own party took a very different position. Uh, the public has to understand that the not passing this pipeline is going to have a direct impact on their standard of living. And uh, I can't be more direct than that. In my uh, eight, 20 years uh, uh, as an assistant and later on a parliamentarian in Parliament, I spent a lot of time on this file, and I can say without absolute reservation, I have no love for the oil industry, and they have no love for me either. I'm not from the West or from the East. I live here in Ontario like everyone else. This pipeline matters for every Canadian, and it's time that Canadians start to stand up and speak out to ensure that it gets passed. Anybody who stands in its way ought to be set aside, and the federal government has the authority to do that. They just want to dither, and I think that's unfortunate. So what would have happened at this emergency uh, caucus meeting? What options do they have? What are they discussing? Declaring the matter an emergency. I mean, you simply have to say, first of all, uh, this which is Which is, you know, self-inflicted. Well, it would be, but you can see what's going to happen. Alberta is going to set itself up to saying if that pipeline fails, if we don't actually buy it and we still have the same problem getting our oil to market, we're going to retaliate. And the retaliate would, uh, retaliation would mean that the federal government is going to have to impose uh, you know, a supply uh, management uh, scenario in British Columbia to ensure there's adequacy of supply because it will be an emergency. So uh, there's a number of ways in which the federal government can come at this. So Alberta's just going to shut off the tap to BC? It will. Yeah. It's preparing that today. Wow. If you read the, uh, yeah, I mean, and they've been talking about it sometimes. Yeah. I did my first interviews on this back well over two months ago when the idea was, well, we saw that happen, by the way, Scott, here in Ontario and Alberta said no uh, to uh, the federal government uh, deploying or reorienting the oil industry towards Sarnia and towards Ontario, uh, Lougheed at the time throttled back about 15% of the oil, which shut down the petro- petrochemical industry in Sarnia and had enormous reverberations throughout uh, the economy. So this is, uh, you know, they can do it. And I'm not suggesting they would, but in this case, uh, I've got no skin in the game, but I can see Alberta's point. I certainly don't see BC's point. And uh, those who are using the excuse of environment and vessels only have to look at the hundreds of vessels that pass in front of Victoria and Vancouver every day as Americans have no trepidation with bringing dirty Alaskan oil all the way down to their refineries just a few minutes south of the border, which you can actually see from places in Victoria and Vancouver. So that, to me, is fundamentally dishonest in terms of an argument. But, But what do you expect? You have the Sierra Club, the Tides organization, and you have uh, Greenpeace, all foreign entities spending an incredible amount of money to distort not only information, but to actually, you know, bust people there and create all sorts of chaos. And well, maybe BC will love it when Alberta shuts off the tab. Woohoo, there's no more oil. Yay! We got what we wanted. Yeah, well, I, as I remind those who are doing the protesting, put down the signs that are made with paints that are derived from fossil fuels. <laughs> Get off the paved roads that are from asphalt. Get off the concrete that happened because of fossil fuels. Stop using your cell phones. Take off your glasses. Uh, remove the paints that you're using. You can go down the road here. They cannot get rid of fossil fuels. It's part of the reason we are uh, a much better civilization. And the standard of living for everybody globally has increased because of its proper use. Managed properly, uh, it has increased uh, population, increased uh, the, you know, uh, human, uh, the human condition uh, as compared to any, genera- any generation previous to us. But maybe that's the argument. 
there are people out there who actually uh, take uh, this view of Gaia, that uh, you have to uh, reduce the population in order to save the planet. If that's what this is all about, then I think they should, uh, well, be hmm. voting for themselves. So uh, now they're chatting about putting money in so Kinder Morgan, Morgan shareholders feel better. I mean, this has got to be exactly what Kinder Morgan's hoping for. This just plays right into the well, business's hands. Yeah. No, Kinder Morgan's put the money up. They put a billion and a half dollars already. But They're, is Alberta talking about buying in now, aren't they? Alberta's desperate. Alberta's desperate. They're trying every way they can to, you know, to get around this thing. And uh, I, I don't think it's a very smart idea. Uh, but, you know, you've got uh, Horgan going around saying, I'll build a pipeline from a natural gas, bringing all sorts of vessels into more sensitive areas that the federal government said you shouldn't in the Northern Gateway uh, Kitimat area. But at the same time, you have uh, Alberta saying, look, we're trying to do our very best here. We'll even take a, an equity position to avert the outcome. I just don't see this as, uh, as, as I, I think Alberta has bent over backwards. I think the federal government uh, has to bear a significant amount of responsibility for bringing things to the brink. Uh, and I think uh, we all know where Mr. Horgan and his uh, band of merry men uh, in, in, in coalition with the, the green zealots of this world really stand. And that's uh, they have uh, their own fantasy uh, at uh, at play, they're not really dealing with uh, reality, nor are they dealing with the interests, the broader interests of Canada. So, uh, will this be built? I think it will. Um, I still think it will. It end up costing us way more money because we got to guarantee it to Kinder Morgan. No, I think you. Uh, this is it. There's no more pipelines after this. So you know, you pretty much cap the Canadian industry. But if we don't do it, uh, that's a very different matter. It's uh, it's likely to lead to some serious dislocations across Canada. It's going to be a very expensive summer, not just for for British Columbia um, and uh, you know a uh, a bruised and battered Alberta, but I would suggest for the rest of the country. And of course, in a panoply of, of responses, could also be uh, Alberta saying, "No more. We're not letting your natural gas pipelines from the northeastern part of BC cross our territory into the United States." We're also going to start limiting the amount of fuel uh, that you might be sending or crude, whatever the case may be, via rail through the, uh, you know, through the, uh, uh, the... How can BC keep this up? Well, I mean, they're whistling past their own graves. And yeah. frankly, it's, uh, I've raised this a couple of times. Uh, the Premier's in denial. But apparently this morning he's not, because I think he's now realizing he better fish or cut bait. And uh, if he's about to take the country with him on this spurious argument that he's standing up to defend the interests of the West Coast and think baloney. He knows full well, if you would taken the time to read that, that that is a very strong, very good uh, pipeline, has an excellent uh, reputation, a great track record. And if we don't uh, send our oil to other parts of the world, the other world, the other parts of the world would be more than willing to sell it here to Canada without the same environmental concerns. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. It's not over, Dan. I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thanks for the time. <laughs> Here we go. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Toronto Police held a press conference earlier on this afternoon in regard to the Bruce MacArthur case. This is just becoming more bizarre as time goes on. To talk more about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more, and he is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good to be here. It's just just outside of the presser uh, that was going on, and and you know what? Uh, one thing I like about listening to the homicide detectives, you don't get much fake news out of them because <laughs> they have to go to oh. court swearing a Bible and get cross-examined on what they say and what they write. So that's maybe it. We could, maybe we could use a bit more of that. Boy, isn't that the case? Um, so uh, tell us about this investigation. What are these officers still digging into? Are they they're still in his apartment? I understand they're still going through things. Where do you take an investigation like this at this stage? Yeah, it was actually, it was, it was actually, uh, I wasn't expecting much of a news conference, actually, because I had talked to the detective about a, a week and a half ago, and I wasn't th- sure there was going to be too much new, but, you know, he really refreshed us just to what the point you put us to there. I mean, the police are like an anaconda here, uh, wrapping around this case and continuing to squeeze it. The, the detective said they are still in MacArthur's apartment. They're still in there. He says they're going through it inch by inch inch he literally said scott we're looking at stuff that's on the furniture we're taking the furniture apart and looking inside the furniture like there isn't anything they're not looking at to find uh, evidence and obviously what they're looking there for is is everything from fingerprints to different uh, fluids that may match up with victims and he says they're coming out with a lot of exhibits out of it so 
uh, by no means are they slowing down. Do we know how long MacArthur had lived there? Uh, yeah, they do. They, they, they know that. I mean, they've gone back. They're, they're going to know everything about this guy from his shoe size when he was a kid uh, to whatever. So it's going to be fairly uh, fairly extensive. And, uh, you know, the detective said today they've actually extended. Before they talked about perhaps looking at up to 30 properties uh, when the weather gets better to bring in the canine dogs to look and maybe do some digging and excavating. He said they were waiting for the weather to break. But as of today, he announced that's up to 75 properties they're going to be looking at. Hmm. And he says that was because of feedback and tips from people in the community and finding other information on client lists uh, of properties that he worked at. So they're still going to be looking and, and literally digging on this case, literally digging. Obviously, uh, th- this has done nothing for relations between the community and, and the Toronto police. That being said, and, and we've talked about it this in the past, in the old days, uh, these things were handled differently. And in the old days, a lot of the time, the community didn't want to talk to uh, police about this. It, has that changed with this case? Or are they seeing more coming forward and, and, and more help, more support from the community? Let, let me give you my sense of that. Let me give you my sense of that, Scott. And I think it's an important point. I think that when I talk, when I'm on the ground and I'm talking to normal people that are out there, they don't necessarily know who I am. I ask what they think about investigations of the police or whatnot. I think the majority of people, even within the gay community, they understand that the police have work to do and they have to work with the police and they want to see these things be resolved and they know that they need the police's help going forward. Now, there's some leadership people that have some paid positions that are I would say, basically in the angst and divisiveness uh, game, who are, I think, exploiting and trying to make it worse uh, than what it is. That's not to say that there's not some who legitimately do have complaints, but I, and they have legitimate grievances. But I think the majority of people are really with the police on this, and they're glad that they've just cleared up another homicide. As, as the detective said, that's all three men from Project Houston have now been accounted for with first-degree murder charges laid in those cases. So I think the police are working at it. I think generally the public is supportive of the way the police are doing their work. Uh, but there's some who, who, who do seek to make it divisive, and I think in many ways it's for their own interests, not for the communities, so, in my opinion. So what did we learn today, especially about that photo that was released uh, several weeks ago? Well, that's an interesting one. They, they had the photo actually enhanced, the detective said, by a person in the uh, who is who's from the gay community. That so you talk about working. Who's someone who works with photos and photo retouchings and enhancements? And uh, she, I believe it was. I was taking some notes at the time when he was talking. Uh, did up another version of the photo to make it look more, you know, rather than looking like a, a, a cadaver's head, it make it look more right. human. And they've added that to the poster that they've put out and that they're asking that the media promote that as much as they can, even internationally. Because so far, even though they have lots of people come forward, and I told you I've had people come forward, I passed on tips to them, they still have not been able to identify that man, and they, they desperately want to do that. And this is the source of the next charge, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, no, not, not that man. The, the, the charge that's now is this man they knew who was missing. He was the second one that miss, went missing. Abdul Basir Razi. He was the man who uh, left his home on December 29th, 2010, or his work, December 29th, 2010, and his family never heard from him again. He worked in Mississauga. His family was in Brampton. He was uh, in the closet, if you will, uh, and he went missing, and they reported it to Peel Police, who investigated. Seven days later, his car was found, you know, within blocks of uh, the Mallory Crescent House, just for just for the listeners to understand, was where his this was found, where all the planters were, and they were finally able to match up uh, some DNA from body parts. So now that that is the one that's been added, they still don't know who that man is that's in the photo, and the detective said there's at least one other set of remains they've got no idea who it is, and they're looking at cases going back to 1975. When do you think they will be out of his apartment? I mean, think of how much time they've already been in there. You know, I've I've watched Detective Zinga, who's who's doing a great job by that. I've watched him closely. I'm a guy who watches body language and and that sort of thing as well. And someone asked him that question. They said, "You're still in there. How long are you going to be?" And I watched him kind of look look up in the air with his eyes, take a breath, look down, 
let the breath out. And he said, mm. uh, I'm surprised we're in here as long as we are, and I've got no idea when we're going to get out of here. Mm. So I think it's even uh, pretty formidable to him. He threw a compliment out to the forensic team, saying that they are doing an exhaustive, exhaustive nonstop, excellent job on it. So... You know, that's a compliment. To well, obviously, they keep finding something that's leading them to keep to stay there. Well, well, that's it. And, you know, they're going to have more properties, more things to look at. You know, I tell you, I asked the detective actually one question. I said to him, so you're looking back from 1975 and the late 70s. I said, there was no DNA then. I said, what's it like looking back at those old cases? How do you see the quality of the investigations? And, and have you reached out to any of those detectives who may still be around who worked on them? You know, and he, and he smiled and he said, you know, it's kind of interesting going back, looking at old files, and you see Detective McCormick on there, who mm. used to be a chief, yep. Detective Fantino on there, who used to be a chief. He says it's very interesting to look back and look at them, and he says they're going through it. They're going to analyze what, what they can with new technology to find if they can lift some, maybe some match some fingerprints or, or some other, other evidence they may have. And he said they have not reached out to talk to the former detectives yet, but he says he hasn't ruled out doing that if, if they find more of a matchup. Uh, obviously, Ross, as we mentioned earlier, there's tension between the gay community and the Toronto police. We've seen that with, with the reaction to the Pride Parade last year and, and then again uh, this year. Do you think this investigation and the work that Zinga's doing will help to, to bring these two sides together, will help to mend this relationship? You know, I, I think it will, because I watch his, uh, once again, I'm going to give this detective some praise here. I'm going to ask him for 50 bucks next time I see him uh, <laughs> for, uh, for, for doing this. But he is so good with people and listening to people, and his team is as well. When you have to go and talk to people, I mean, Scott, you do, you do interviews all the time. A lot of them light, some of them informative, some of them can get pretty heavy, and some of them on some pretty tough subjects from time to time. When you have to talk to people about missing loved ones or, or body parts and things like that, yeah. you have to have the most gentlest of touch, yet still be able to do the work. And I, I, I have to believe personally that the people who've been involved with this team as they've investigated have been impressed by them. And I've sort of heard that feedback from some people who are sources that I have in the community who have said that when the police talk to them, they're doing a really good job of working with them. So I, I think that they're doing it you know, one person at a time as they're as they're building this relationship. Different time, different era, eh? It is. I mean, I mean, things change. It's funny how we keep on measuring, you know, the faults of today by, or the faults of yesterday by the, by the new thoughts of, of today. Mm. And, uh, you know, we only have today really in moving forward. And too many people, I think, are more interested in looking backwards. Look backwards if you can learn and you can get better. But if you look backwards just to, to blame and complain, you know, it's like driving your car, looking in the rearview mirror. You're not gonna, you're not gonna do very well. So uh, I can't let you go without uh, asking you about the Sherman case. Anything more there? Uh, another case that is uh, certainly captured people's attention, but we're we're certainly not hearing the information from it as we we are with this one. Yeah, we're not hearing any information. I do know, I do know that uh, one key. I want to be careful how I say this, but one person who, who many people regard as sort of a key suspect uh, was interviewed by the private investigative team, and it was a quite extensive investigation. They sat him down, they talked to him, and uh, that was a number of weeks ago when that occurred. And I haven't heard any results back from it, but uh, things are progressing quietly. No, no one's talking. So it, you can't really say there's been any progress other than people are digging deeper and looking, trying to find the answers to this one. I know I am. Uh, how do you explain that this one seems to be getting more attention than the Sherman case? Is it just that one's progressing faster than the other? It, it, how do you explain that? Well, it's interesting. People have, uh, there's different different groups who have different interests in it, right, who, who would be in, uh, involved in looking at the crimes and different groups that are affected. Um, so it's just a matter of the nature of who the victims are sometimes as to who gets involved in the cases. But it, it's always amazing to me the interest that people have in, in wanting to see crimes get sorted out, find guilty people. They want to help. They want to see them get put away, you know, and they want to see justice get done. There's not many times you find people cheering for the bad guys. 
Good point. Uh, and I've asked you this last time we chatted. Uh, this investigation with MacArthur seems to be going on forever, obviously heading, you know, looking at cases dating back to the 1970s and such. Uh, another charge today. Will we see him at trial soon or will we wait through the summer as some of these other investigations continue, especially in regard to the weather and, and property and such? Well, the general answer to that is the detective has said repeatedly when asked about when things are coming up, are you going to do this, are you going to do this quickly? He just looks and says, look, we're not short of murder charges. He's not getting out. We've got time to investigate this. He's in jail. So there's no rush on their side. But, you know, and we talked about this before, too. I I certainly hope, I mean, this would be my hope anyways, that this defense team would talk to uh, Mr. MacArthur, and they could cut a deal with him. Not a deal that he gets any lighter sentence, but you know what? Why don't you come out and let's go over all these places. You can point out what happened and help us solve these cases. You know, you're going to get out of the can for a little bit when you go along for the ride with the detectives. You might be in handcuffs, sitting in the back of a car, but it's a little bit better than just sitting in a cell every day by yourself. And, you know, bring some relief to these uh, people who don't know what happened to loved ones and clarify them. You know, some of these guys, they like to fight them so they can just go back and forth to court because that's entertainment for them rather than sitting in a cell all the time. I'd rather he folded that way and said, I'll work with you. Let me take me out, take me back out to Madoc where the farm is. I'll show you what I've done out there or something. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too hopeful, but that's, I think that would be the right outcome here. Clear up the cases, get him in jail, get him convicted and bring relief to people who are missing people. From a PR standpoint, how important is it that Toronto police do this, uh, take their time, do it methodically, and get it right? They're doing that. You know, they're doing that. Let let me just say this. I was out the other day, I'm sure you covered it, the missing six-year-old girl out in Scarborough, Mm -hmm. and it was at a TCHC uh, housing project, which, of course, they're tough. We got bad guys in there. You get murders in there. And I was watching all the mother mother bears out there looking out for the cubs. They're posting signs. They're looking. They're doing stuff. And that's a tough community, right? THC is there, low-income housing. People of color are there. I asked people on the side, I said, what do you think of uh, the, the cops at 41 Division? They didn't know who I was. I said, they good to you? Are they bad to you? They said they liked them. They said they're doing good. They're doing better now than they were a few years ago. And they don't have problems with them. They said, hey, they can get pretty rough on some kids, the one guy said, but you know what, the kids are pretty rough on the cops, too. And I asked them what they thought about Chief Saunders. I said, what do you think of the chief? Is he doing a good job or what? And they all said he's doing a good job. They understand he's got a hard job to do. So a lot of this strife that's getting played up a lot of the times about racial strife and hate and problems, uh, I don't see it when I'm out in the streets. I, I promise you, I tell you, if they told me different than what I just told you, I'd report it. But... That's not what I'm hearing. People, the cops are doing a pretty good job, and they're being pretty professional. Now, when they screw up, Scott, I'll be the first to talk about it when they screw up and talk about the problem. But they're doing a pretty good job these days. Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Of course, an update in the Bruce MacArthur case. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.